You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you're probably familiar with the chameleon. Chameleons are famous for blending in with their surroundings, changing their skin colour, being hard to spot because they look like the terrain around them. Psychologists talk about a chameleon effect amongst humans as well, that people naturally and unconsciously mimic other people in social interactions. So there's been some experiments run, and in one experiment uh, where they had two people together performing a task where they had to describe photos, but one of them was actually an actor placed there by the experimenter. And if the actor did things like smile or jiggle their foot, Um, then the other person would unconsciously mimic their behaviour. When they were asked about it afterwards, they weren't even aware that they were doing it. They weren't even conscious that the person they were with was doing these things, and yet they reflected their behaviour like a chameleon adapting to what was going on. And it seemed as well that this built rapport between the people, that where there's more mimicking of behaviour, people like each other more. But we do this sort of thing all of the time without even realising it. Think about yawning. When someone around you yawns, what happens? Uh, You can't help but yawn as well. We tend to mimic and reflect behaviour that we see around us. As followers of Jesus, uh, we want people around us uh, to like us. We do want to be part of the culture and the society in which we live in. And yet, at the same time, Jesus calls us to certain values and behaviours that followers of him need to adhere to. Uh, And so there are some things where we don't want to just adapt and fit in with the culture around us. When Jesus calls us to certain ethics or morality about priorities and life directions, uh, these are things where we don't want to simply reflect the culture around us but stand out as distinct and different from it. But if reflecting other people's behaviours can build rapport, deliberately standing out as different can have the opposite effect. Uh, People can resent us 
and at times even persecute us for standing out as different, standing for Jesus' values and priorities rather than simply adapting to and reflecting the culture around us. Well, that's the focus of the letter to the church at Pergamum that we read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, Here's our map again that we've been showing through this series, which shows where Pergamum is along with the other churches that the letters in Revelation were written to. Pergamum was the capital city of the province of Asia, which meant that the Roman proconsul, who's like the governor of the local area, lived in Pergamum. Uh, He had his residence and he ruled from that city. Now, as a capital city, Pergamon was a bit like Canberra, the capital of Australia. Um, It was there for historical reasons. It was the capital for historical reasons. It wasn't a great location for a city. It wasn't in a good trading position or anything like that. So it was actually less important and less interesting than cities like Ephesus and Smyrna that we've already heard about. It did have an amazing library with some 200,000 scrolls in it. An interesting piece of trivia, uh, the word parchment comes from the word Pergamum related to this big library uh, in the town, the city of Pergamum. It was a very religious city. It had temples to gods like Zeus and Dionysus and Athena. But the focus of the worship in Pergamum was the worship of the Roman emperor, the worship of Caesar. In 29 BC, a temple was built in Pergamum to worship Caesar as a god. It was the first of these temples throughout that entire region. And by the time that this letter was written, uh, it was a big thing to worship the emperor and Christians refusing to do that would have stood out as very different from the culture around them. Christians refusing to join with their friends and families and neighbours, going along to the temple and refusing to join in and say Caesar is Lord and offer worship to him was a big deal. And so in Revelation 2.12, we read these words. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. As with the other letters that we've read, we see a description of the risen Jesus, which is drawn from chapter one of the book of Revelation. And these descriptions aren't random either. They're carefully selected because of the city that they're writing to, the situation they're facing, their circumstances. They need to hear something particular about Jesus. So what do they need to hear? Well, they need to hear that Jesus' tongue is like a sword. What does that mean? Well, I was talking about Jesus' words. Jesus' words, firstly, pierce and penetrate. So in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So the word of God, the word of Jesus is like a a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon, making precise and careful cuts, uh, getting right in where it needs to get in, doing radical surgery on our hearts. 
But secondly, the words of Jesus have the power to judge us. In the Bible, the sword is used as a symbol of justice. Uh, It talks about the state wielding the sword, uh, their authority to punish wrongdoing and to bring justice to make sure that the vulnerable are protected. We've picked up this same image in our society as well. So Lady Justice, you should see the image there on the screen. You'll often find a statue to Lady Justice outside our law courts. Uh, She's blindfolded to mean she's impartial. She's holding up a scale, talking about balancing up things equally and fairly. But she also holds a sword in her hand. Um, Power to actually bring justice, to punish wrongdoing and ensure the protection of the vulnerable within society. Now, if you're under pressure and you're being persecuted like the Christians in Pergamum were, if the state authority is threatening you, punishing you, holding a sword up to you, even killing you for your faith in Jesus, then knowing that the living and the reigning Jesus has a sword as well is very important. But the sword of Jesus is not the sword of state power and violence. Jesus' word is his sword. His words and his truth are powerful and they fight against the might and power of empire and state. So what does Jesus' sword mouth have to say to the church at Pergamum? What does he commend them for doing well? Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Well, remember that Pergamum was the home of the Roman governor. He lived there. He had his throne there, his place of rule there. So is Jesus saying that the Roman governor is Satan or the devil? No, but he's saying that Satan works through this earthly authority, this Roman governor, to oppose Jesus and his people. Uh, As we heard last week, the Christians in this part of the world were under great pressure to conform to worship the emperor as God rather than to be faithful to Jesus. It would have started as peer pressure and persuasion, moved on to financial pressure where their businesses were um, shunned and that had an economic impact on them, and then moved on to physical intimidation, threats, violence, and even martyrdom. We read here that Antipas uh, was obviously killed for his faith like Polycarp, who Dell told us about last week. And yet the church at Pergamum is commended. They're commended for remaining true to the name of Jesus, for not giving up their faith in him, holding on even when it costs them their lives. But it appears that not everyone in the church at Pergamum have done this because the critique of the church follows in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, the mention of these guys, Balaam and Balak, is a reference to an Old Testament story back in the book of Numbers where the king of Moab, Balak, um, hired this guy Balaam to try and lead the people of Israel astray. Uh, And he did that because they compromised in two areas, idolatry and sexual immorality. And here Jesus pulls up the church at Pergamum for exactly the same two compromises. The idolatry being talked about was quite literal. Um, In Pergamum, citizens were expected to join in worshipping the emperor as a god. We've got some letters from around this time from a guy called Pliny, who was governor of a nearby province, and he describes in his letter how he tests the loyalty of citizens of Rome in his province. And the way that he'd do it, he'd bring in a statue of the emperor into the courtyard, and then he'd ask people to recite a prayer to the Roman gods while offering incense and wine to the emperor's statue. To refuse to do this would have been being disloyal to the state. You know, you're a threat to the whole empire and a threat to the society. Uh, We have this thing in Australia, don't we? If people don't toe the line and fit in with what our expected values and behaviours are, we call them un-Australian. Well, the Christians would have been viewed as being un-Roman. And it's not just social pressure either. You've got the Roman authorities there holding a sword while they're telling you that you have to offer incense and pray to the emperor as God, telling you that you must declare Caesar is Lord and worship him. But the trouble for Christians is that we believe that Jesus is Lord and that he's the only one worthy of our worship. And so here's the dilemma for the church at Pergamum. Some of them stood firm even under this pressure like Antipas and even lost their lives for it. But for other members of the church, the pressure was too much. It was easier to be like a chameleon, to blend in. You know, when your neighbours are heading off to the temple to offer their sacrifice and join in the worship, what harm really is there if you join in? I mean, it'll help you to fly under the radar. It'll be good for your business, which is really struggling at the moment. It'll help you build relationships with the people in the culture around you. So it was very obvious what idolatry looked like in their culture. And idolatry is still pervasive in our own society, but in different ways. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Those last four words are striking, aren't they? Greed, which is idolatry. So in an affluent Western democracy like ours, this is one of the key areas where idolatry strikes us. We get caught up with the affluence around us. We just fit in, blend in, change to match the lifestyles 
of the people around us. Uh, We're like chameleons. Uh, Christians are hard to spot sometimes because our behaviour is very much like the people around us. Brian Rosner, who's the principal of Ridley College here in Melbourne, says this about greed as idolatry. What do idolaters do with their idols, which believers are meant to do with God? The answer is that they offer their idols love, trust, and obedience. In each case, that is exactly what the greedy do with their money. Greed is driven by an inordinate love, misplaced trust, and forbidden service. So here's the three questions for each of us. What do I love? What do I trust? What do I serve? Do I love wealth or a certain lifestyle that money can bring more than I love God? Do I depend, trust my wealth as security and safety rather than putting my dependence on God? Do I spend too much time and energy in the service of money and building my wealth and lifestyle in a way that undermines my service of God? If we Christians don't look that different from those around us in terms of our attitudes to money, dependence on our wealth, and where our time and energy is spent, if we've camouflaged ourselves so well that we just blend in, then the challenge of greed as idolatry needs to be squarely faced. Its subtlety is actually its danger. The other area that Jesus names here for the church is sexual immorality. Actually, Paul mentioned that, didn't he, in Colossians 3 as well. It's almost as if this is a danger area for every culture, every society at all times. Now, the Bible's view of sexual ethics can be stated quite simply and clearly. It's this, that sex is to be expressed and experienced only within a marriage relationship. And in the words of the Anglican wedding service, Scripture teaches that marriage is a lifelong partnership uniting a woman and a man in heart mind and body. It's actually a positive and beautiful vision for human flourishing. But it's now viewed as outdated and restrictive. More than that, now that Christians are viewed as the bad guys in society, this view is deemed oppressive and harmful. If there was ever an area where the church was tempted to be chameleon-like, this is it. And even parts of the church are compromising in this area, reinterpreting uh, what marriage is and what sexual expression can look like in order to better conform to the views of our society. Now, hear me rightly on this. As Christians, we don't have a right to impose our view on others or to insist that everyone needs to live, live according to Christian morality and ethics. Apart from the belief that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is actually God and worthy of worship, uh, that his words are authoritative to shape our lives, why would you live this way and in obedience to Jesus and his commands? 
But our call to people is to come and meet Jesus. Meet Jesus who is the risen Lord and who loves us all deeply. Come and experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. Come and unite yourself with Jesus and learn his ways. Jesus' way is a, is a challenging way. It's a narrow and difficult way in many areas of life. But we believe it's the best way and the path to true fulfillment, true freedom, and true expression. For those of us who love Jesus, though, and name him as our Lord, the one who has authority in our lives, then we need to follow the pattern that Jesus calls us to do. But there'll always be a squeeze on us as we do that. We'll always be tempted and pressured to conform to the society around us. There'll always be a temptation to be a chameleon and just to fit in what other people are doing. And so the letter to the church at Pergamum finishes with a warning and a promise. And it's helpful, given the pressure that we face as well, for us to hear these things as well. The warning is in verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a reminder that Jesus is the ultimate judge, that at the end of the day, all of us will be held to account, held against the standard of his word. Uh, It's not the words of our surrounding culture that we need to conform to, but rather we need to align our thinking and our lives with what Jesus tells us to do. In the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The sword of Jesus' word is more powerful and more ultimate than the sword of empire. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not our premier or our prime minister. Jesus is Lord, not the peer group pressure, or the latest intellectual fashion. Uh, The awesome reigning Jesus will return and he will judge us. And that's when the final truth of his word and our lives will be laid bare. And it's true too, and that's why we need to hear the promise of verse 17, because that's when this will be fulfilled. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The Christians at Pergamum were being invited and even coerced to go along to these banquets at the pagan temples. But Jesus here reminds his people that he will feed them with better food than they'll get at these feasts. He'll give them heavenly food that will nourish them. Uh, Back in the Old Testament again, when the Israelites were in the desert, God provided this heavenly food called manna that came down and, and fed them. It was enough for what they needed day by day. And one of the great images of the return of Jesus is that we'll participate in a great feast, a great heavenly banquet, where we'll be gathered with Jesus himself and with his people 
there'll be this great feast and party in heaven, which will be greater than any earthly banquet that we might feel like we're missing out on. Now, the white stone that's referred to here is, is more cryptic. Uh, people aren't 100% sure what is meant here. Uh, sometimes stones were used in ancient times as, as tickets to get into feasts, so it could be that. But you notice also that there's this, this name, this new name written on the stone, and it's a name that is known only to the one who receives it. So it speaks about an intimacy here that each of us can have with Jesus. Jesus does call on us to reject the false intimacy of sexual promiscuity and pornography, but he offers us a greater intimacy through deep relationship with him, relationship that starts now and gives us uh, our lives meaning and purpose. Uh, relationship with the one who knows us deeply, who knows our deepest desires and secrets and loves us. Relationship with Jesus that continues on forever, where even greater intimacy with him is to come when we'll see him face to face and experience him more fully. So there's pressure on us now. There's pressure to worship along with those around us. There's pressure on us to live the way that other people are living. There's pressure on us to conform to the norms and the standards of our society. And it's hard, it's really hard not to be a chameleon and not to want to subtly blend in with what everyone else is doing. But instead, Jesus says to us that we should look to him and we should treat his powerful word as our standard for the way that we shape our lives. He calls on us to be transformed into his image and likeness, to be more and more like Jesus rather than more and more like the people around us. So let me pray for us and the strengthening of God's spirit as we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is powerful and true and we pray that your word would act like a surgeon on our hearts, shaping our hearts and our lives that we would reflect you and we pray that we would remember that your word is powerful to judge and that we would align our lives so that they match up with your word and the ethical demands that you place on us in the way that we would live. Amidst the pressures that we face, the pressure to blend in, to be like a chameleon, to be just like others around us, we ask for the strengthening of your spirit to help us to be transformed into your image rather than what we see around us. And we ask that we as a church community, a fellowship of believers following you together would offer a different pattern and encourage each other on this difficult journey. So we ask for your help and your strength and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.